This is part two of our podcast episode on the story of David and Goliath. You're listening to Biblical Proportions. Our website is www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com. left off our last episode, we had spent some time setting up our battle between David and Goliath. We examined where the Philistines came from, as well as some of Goliath's giant lineage. And I think it's important to note again how ubiquitous the legend of giants was in the ancient world. You know, this is not just a story in the Bible, and this is the only place you hear about giants. I said this at the end of the last episode, but it bears repeating that these stories about and belief in giants are found all over the ancient world in just about every civilization, and not only do most civilizations have stories about giants, but they have a common origin story for where these giants came from as well, which all line up pretty well with the Genesis chapter 6 story we mentioned in the last episode, in which I've mentioned in um, a, a previous podcast episode, Sons of God, about these heavenly divine beings having children with human women. For me, maybe the most fascinating connections between the biblical idea of the Nephilim and giants like Goliath is made in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. If you're unfamiliar with the Septuagint or or what it is, um, a couple of centuries after the Old Testament had been finished, the common language in the world at the time was Greek. In fact, most of the Jews of the time didn't even speak their uh, you know, native language of Hebrew anymore, which, which was the language that the Old Testament was written in. So a group of Jewish scholars made a modern Greek translation, modern to them anyway, of the Hebrew Old Testament so that the Jews of the time would be able to read it. It was called the Septuagint for the 70 scholars that worked on the translation. But the interesting giant connection with the world outside of the Bible comes in one of the instances where the Septuagint translators chose to translate the word Rephaim that we talked about earlier, the name for a bunch, if not all of these giants, they chose to translate that word using the Greek word Titanon. You know it as the word Titan. And of course, you know of the Titans because they are famous in Greek mythology. I think when you read the description of the Greek Titans, or maybe even especially the demigods of Greek mythology, you know, someone like Achilles, for example, they sound a little bit like these giant Nephilim descendants because, well, what is a demigod? Well, it is the the offspring of a god or a divine being and a human. And what are the giant Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6? The offspring of a divine being and a human. Uncanny similarities, I think, but especially when you consider the place of punishment to which the Greek titans were banished. They were famously, according to Greek mythology, locked in a place called Tartarus. You'll remember this if you ever studied Greek mythology in school or anything like that. Tartarus was a deep abyss where the Titans were imprisoned and tormented. The really interesting biblical connection, though, 
comes when you flip to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and see that Peter, in describing the punishment God doled out to these angels or um, heavenly beings from Genesis 6, actually says, Peter actually says that God cast them into Tartarus, just like the Titans. This is the Greek word that Peter uses. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that astonishing that the same place of punishment is, is reserved for both the fallen angel creatures from Genesis 6 and the Titans of Greek mythology. Even the description of Tartarus is basically the same in the Bible as in Greek mythology. I mean, listen to 2 Peter 2, 4. Quote, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that word is Tartarus there in the Greek, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. End quote. So God threw them into Tartarus and locked them up in chains to await judgment. Sounds a lot like the description of Tartarus in Greek mythology. What I'm wondering at this point, and, and by the way, many other people um, are as well, scholars included, have wondered, are the, the giant Nephilim demigod legends just, you know, all getting tied up and connected between ancient societies? So were the Septuagint writers equating the Rephaim of the Old Testament? Remember, that was the, the umbrella name for the, the Anakim and all these other giant tribes who descended from the Nephilim. Are the biblical writers equating the Rephaim to the titans of Greek mythology? Are, are they wanting us as readers to make that same connection so in essence they could be saying yeah we all know about these creatures us the greeks and you know, the babylonians we all are aware of these rephaim and each culture just has their different stories that they used to tell about them in the lexham bible dictionary's entry on the rephaim the author michael heiser says this about um, this, you know, Rephaim uh, Titan connection. He says, quote, The Septuagint's use of Titanon, um, which is just the word Titans, for Rephaim creates a conceptual link between biblical Rephaim and Greek mythology. The Titans were, depending on the Greek writer and text, divine beings or the giant offspring of divine beings. End quote. When we read the story of David and Goliath, should we be thinking of the Greek titans when we read of Goliath? It's an intriguing thought. As far as giants go in the ancient world, many of the ancient historians, philosophers, and, and even theologians in the Greek and Roman periods take up the topic and really just kind of assume that giants aren't some made-up legend, but that they actually exist, or at least did exist in the past. Augustine, famous church father and theologian, takes up two subsections in what is probably his most well-known work, City of God, discussing the question of the origins for the giants. Not discussing if giants existed, but assuming that you already know that they did, and pondering where they came from. Likewise, Pliny the Elder, Roman philosopher slash historian, discusses giants in his work, Historia Naturalis, um, you know, written, I think, in 79 AD. 
His hypothesis is that human beings used to be really tall and had been gradually shrinking over time. He's not alone in this thought. Roman poet Lucretius says something similar about 100 years prior to Pliny about humans starting off as giants. Pausanias, the Greek traveler and writer, actually writes about the finding, um, not, not, by, not by himself, but by someone else, of a giant coffin with a huge skeleton inside. He attributed the size to the fact that it was ancient, again, sort of, sort of hinting at that theory that humans used to be giants back in the day. Finally, the father of history himself, Herodotus, also writes about the finding of a giant coffin with a skeleton inside. The list goes on, and I, I could name other ancient writers or writings all discussing the topic of giants because there are many more of them. But many of these ancient writers held the view mentioned before that I saw called in Brian Doak's book, The Last of the Rephaim, quote, human physical degeneration, end quote, um, where uh, you know humans have just gotten smaller over time. The point is that many ancient people just believed that giants were a reality. You know, despite what you might believe about giants and what you might think with our, you know, in our modern world, with our um, rationally thinking minds, you know, it's hard for us to think that there could have ever been such a thing as, as, as giants. Um, but despite whether or not you think it, the ancient people certainly did. They assumed it was the case and really... Um, the Bible makes the assumption that giants were real as well. As far as any hard evidence goes, um, there has been some evidence of skeletal remains of very tall men in the land of Canaan, but you know that's really pretty hotly debated as to whether or not the remains found were were you know legitimate. Apparently, uh, and this dates back to the late 1980s, I think, but the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland has claimed that, that it is, or at least was at some point in time, in possession of the remains of a nine-foot-tall Irishman. There are modern giant hunters out there that I think you could probably find on the internet. And I know it might seem we're you know going a bit far afield of our story of David and Goliath, but I think the topic of giants in the ancient world is well, both fascinating and relevant for our biblical story. In this conversation, the connections to these similar giant Nephilim stories from other civilizations is relevant for us because there are people out there who will say, you know, I just can't believe in these fanciful fairy tales about giants and supernatural beings. Um, and some might feel especially that way when you start making the connection to other ancient stories like the ones from Greek mythology, stories that we already believe to just be made-up fairy tales. The Bible is just another one of these made-up stories, some might say. I certainly can, can see how we can, can feel that way. This is how famous theologian and author C.S. Lewis felt once upon a time. Of course, Lewis, if you know his story, was a staunch atheist in his younger years, and one of the things that sort of reinforced his atheistic belief was when he realized that the Bible has, you know, kind of the same storyline as a bunch of these other ancient stories. Maybe he thought if they are all myths like Greek mythology, then the Bible, which has a lot of the same sort of stories or themes, maybe the Bible is no different than Greek mythology, for example. Maybe it's just 
some sort of made-up story, and it's just the Jewish or Christian variation of that made-up story. Everything turned one day for him, however, after a conversation with his close friend J.R.R. Tolkien. Lewis finally realized that the Bible was the myth that was true. Maybe the Bible wasn't just another one of these ancient myths. Maybe these ancient civilizations all have the same stories because they're remembering true events, and the Bible is the true story. Lewis put it this way. He said, quote, It is not the difference between falsehood and truth. It is the difference between a real event on the one hand and dim dreams or premonitions of that same event on the other. End quote. In the context of our specific story of David and Goliath, and more broadly the giant uh, Nephilim theme in Scripture, what if Greek mythology or Sumerian or Babylonian myth or, uh, or the Celtic and Nordic legends, what if those are the dim dreams and premonitions and the biblical account of the giant Nephilim and people like Goliath are the real event? And this real event, to get back to our story, is marching right out in between the battle lines of the Valley of Elah. We've talked about Goliath's size, but his equipment, his weapons and armor described in 1 Samuel 17 is worth noting too. In verses 5 through 7, it says, quote, He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. End quote. I think it's interesting to match the Jewish historian Josephus' description of the events with the biblical narrative. Now, if you're not familiar with Josephus, he was a Jewish historian living in the Roman Empire in the 1st century AD. One of his works is titled Antiquities of the Jews, and in this work he tells the entire history of the Jewish people, starting from the creation account all the way to his own time. And you have to understand Josephus is, is difficult to use for just pure historical fact because he clearly does take some liberty with events, probably adding some embellishments. In a lot of ways, this was just sort of how historical writing of that time was done. But you just have to know what you're reading, not that it isn't something of an historical account, but you might just want to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. I like looking at his telling of some of the stories in the Old Testament because you get a little extra flavor not found in the biblical text. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but again, you just have to take it with a grain of salt and understand that going in. Anyway, here's what Josephus says about Goliath's entrance onto the battlefield and about his equipment. He says, quote, Now there came down a man out of the camp of the Philistines, whose name was Goliath of the city of Gath, a man of vast bulk, for he was of four cubits and a span in tallness. And see there's that, that variant record of Goliath's height instead of the six cubits found in the Bible. Continuing on, he says, 
and had about him weapons suitable to the largeness of his body, for he had a breastplate on that weighed 5,000 shekels. He had also a helmet and greaves of brass as large as you would naturally suppose might cover the limbs of so vast a body. His spear was also such as was not carried like a light thing in his right hand, but he carried it as lying on his shoulders. He had also a lance of six hundred shekels, and many followed to carry his armor. End quote. You can see the little bit of extra detail there, especially the part about all the people following him to carry his armor. Again, if that detail is true. His armor, or breastplate, is said to have been 6,000 shekels. I've seen different estimates for this. The weight for this is probably somewhere around 125 pounds just for the armor he's wearing. I can't even imagine something like that. I have a brother who has one of those weighted vests, you know, that you, you, you put on to work out or go running in or something, and I think he keeps maybe 25 pounds in that. Or I recently went backpacking with some friends one weekend, and I had a, a backpack on that was probably about 20 pounds in weight, um, and that was not easy to move around in. Add 100 extra pounds to that, and you got what Goliath was carrying. Can you imagine 125 pounds strapped on your body, and you're not just expected to walk around or take a few steps or you know maybe do a few squats like you're working out with a weighted vest on, but you're expected to fight in hand-to-hand combat. It sort of defies the mind. His spearhead clocks in at 600 shekels, which was around 15 to 17 pounds. Imagine hurling that at someone with any kind of velocity. His coat of mail that is described was probably a thick piece of leather that overlapped bronze plates, which looked like fish scales. Maybe you've seen images of something like that before. That's why the Hebrew word used for coat of mail literally just means breastplate of scales. This would have protected him from his neck all the way down to his knees. His spear that is mentioned was um, probably huge, as Josephus describes, and you get this kind of peculiar note about it being like a weaver's beam. In doing research for this episode, I realized that there is a lot of debate among scholars as to what it means that the spear was like a weaver's beam. You know, in, in what way is it like a weaver's beam? You know, is it like a weaver's beam because of its size and a weaver's beam is really big too? Um, though, you know, I don't think it's altogether obvious that that is the comparison the text is trying to make. Uh, you know, maybe it is, but one scholar that I was reading had a pretty interesting take, and I, I know nothing about weaver's beams or, I think, um, the looms that they are maybe connected to. I, you know, I, know, I know nothing about them, but the, the, the one scholar I was reading, he believes that the comparison was made because, like a weaver's beam, the, the spear had a, a loop attached to it, kind of like, I guess, a weaver's beam um, would have had a loop attached to it. I've never seen a weaver's beam, but there are a lot of whole sections, I mean literally entire sections of scholarly articles on this topic devoted to the description of the ancient loom, I guess it is, is what it's called, you know, used for weaving. 
and according to this scholar, the loop would have been large enough for two fingers to fit in and attached to the spear at its center of gravity. This would have allowed the person carrying it to hurl it with incredible velocity and accuracy. I mean, talk about a terrifying and a deadly weapon. So Goliath would have been a terrifying sight to the Israelite troops for more reasons than just his size. It was common for warriors like Goliath to walk out onto the battlefield and brandish their weapons to strike fear in the hearts of the enemy. Surely his size and equipment would have done just that. All of his equipment, by the way, would have certainly been superior in every way to that of the Israelites. I mean, we get a little note in 1 Samuel 13 about the state of Israelite weaponry at the time. The Israelites are actually having to go to the Philistines to get their weapons made because they have no blacksmiths of their own. This certainly you know, seems like a JV versus varsity scenario here. Imagine your high school football team, wherever you went to high school, is so poor and inexperienced that it has to borrow all of its equipment from its main rival. And then they've got to play that rival. I mean, that's the epitome of a David versus Goliath underdog story right there. And yeah, since you're getting all of the equipment from the rival team, they can just stop giving it to you at any time. It's an understatement to call that a disadvantage. By the way, there's another point of association here between Goliath and the Greek mythological figures that's worth noting. There's a point in the story of the Iliad where Achilles, um, the sort of mythic demigod figure and the hero of the story, is putting on his illustrious armor. And really, you ought to go read this section of the Iliad and tell me that it doesn't sound just like Goliath with his armor. Achilles has impressive uh, bronze armor, a huge shield, and a massive spear said to be so heavy that only Achilles himself could wield it. I mean, you could take both of these passages, the one in the Iliad about Achilles and his armor, and then the one in 1 Samuel 17 about Goliath and his armor, take them out of their contexts so that you didn't know which passage was which, and I'm really not sure you could tell which one was talking about Goliath and which one about Achilles. Again, the civilizational overlap with this giant mythos is undeniable, if not remarkable. Goliath comes out to face the Israelites and levels this challenge at them. Quote, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. End quote. I mentioned this earlier, but the hand-to-hand combat Goliath proposes was certainly not unheard of in the ancient world and, interestingly enough, was quite prevalent amongst the, the uh, Mycenaean Greeks, the Greeks of, of Homer's Iliad, and this type of combat is also well represented in the Iliad itself. I remember watching the popular movie Troy from a few years ago, the one with 
um, Brad Pitt as Achilles and uh, Eric Banya as Hector. The movie is about the story of the Iliad, obviously, and if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about, but there is that scene where Achilles comes to face Hector in hand-to-hand combat, and I can't help but think of Goliath challenging any Israelite brave enough to the same kind of fight. So Goliath challenges them. We find out that this isn't just a one-time challenge. He comes out for 40 days, every day, daring the Israelites to send a man out to fight him. And the Israelites were terrified. Verse 11 tells us that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And just think about what is going on here. Israel is afraid of Goliath because of his size, equipment, etc., and they are not trusting in God's power to overcome the giant. In just this way, with the story of the 12 spies sent into the land back in Numbers, a story we've already referenced in this episode, the Israelites back then were terrified of the giants in the land, and the majority failed to believe in God's power against those giant enemies. The Israelites are living out the exact same sin that caused one whole generation of their ancestors to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and not get to see the very promised land in which these Israelites on the battlefield now live. I find that a bit ironic, but it is at their point of greatest fear that our hero and savior figure in the story steps onto the stage, ready to defend the name of the living God and deal Goliath, that giant of Nephilim descent, a crushing defeat. We are introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, as the son of Jesse who had three older brothers, all of whom followed Saul off to war against the Philistine forces at the Battle of Elah. We've been introduced to David before this point in 1 Samuel. In the previous chapter, he's chosen by God to secede Saul as king of Israel. In that same account, we are told that he is the youngest of his brothers. He was, and this is the ESV translation, quote, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The NIV translates this a little differently, saying, quote, He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. The difference might be due to the fact that the Hebrew word that was translated ruddy um, in the ESV, which is the same way that the uh, King James Version translates it, by the way, is a bit of a strange word. Really, it means reddish either in um, hair or complexion. It's the same word used in the description of Esau back in Genesis, who was famously born with a head full of red hair. So it seems likely that David was, in fact, a redhead, which is, you know, I think a pretty interesting little detail here. He was a shepherd by trade and skilled at playing the lyre. David, at this point, in time has been serving as King Saul's armor-bearer and soothing him with his smooth lyre-playing. Apparently, he is still a young boy when the battle um, with Goliath takes place. Just how young? Um, we don't have an answer for. I've seen estimates anywhere from you know a young teenager to maybe early 20s. I guess it depends on your definition of a young boy. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we know that we know that God commands that the minimum age for a soldier in Israel was to be 20. So, it seems reasonable to believe that David was younger than that since he, he isn't here on the battlefield fighting. Um, he didn't go off to war anyway to, to fight. Maybe he wasn't 20 yet. In our story, we find that 
David is going back and forth between serving as Saul's armor bearer and tending his father's sheep. And apparently at the time, he is back home working as a shepherd. David is told by his father, Jesse, to go to the battlefield and take his brother's food, um, some bread, some parched grain, which was a delicacy at the time. It's made by, by roasting ears of barley or wheat over a fire. It might seem strange to us that the soldiers have to have a brother bring them food on the battlefield, but it was actually common in the ancient world that soldiers were responsible for their own provisions. I mean, you know, in modern times, this is really not something that happens. Governments provide provisions and rations for soldiers, though I was informed by my father, who is an American military historian, that at times during you know the, the American Revolution or the Civil War, government supplied provisions were so lacking that it wasn't uncommon for troops to you know have to forage or hunt for supplemental food, but there really isn't anything in term anything in terms of American military history anyway um, that fits for a modern day comparison to this. So David is taking provisions to his brothers on the battlefield. Um, it's possibly made a lot easier due to, to do this due to the fact that David only has to walk about 15 miles from his home to get to the battlefield. The geographical situation in the land of Canaan makes everything so compact that nothing's very far away. I've seen the comparison that Israel was about the size of the state of New Jersey. And Really, to me, David's arrival on the battlefield seems like God's perfect timing because David gets there not a moment too late to hear that day's installment of Goliath's challenge to one-on-one -on -one combat. David's response um, is interesting, and I think it gives us a picture of what kind of guy, or I guess young boy, he really was. As the Israelite soldiers are discussing what the reward will be for any Israelite who does indeed kill the Philistine giant, you can't help but notice some repetition here. Some of the soldiers appear to be telling David what the reward will be for one, um, the one who kills Goliath. Then he just seems to turn around and ask, Hey, what's going to be done for the man who kills the Philistine? I mean, he, he's just given the answer to this question, it seems. The flow of this just seems a little funny. Why would, Dave, why would David ask a question again that he just received the answer to? The way I heard one commentator describe it, David appears to be going around group to group asking the same question. In verse 26, quote, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? End quote. But this commentator says that it sort of seems like David's trying to, you know, plant the idea and stoke up the passions of the soldiers by saying, hey, who is this guy that's going to defy the living God? You know, what are we going to do about it? Then he goes to the next group. Hey, what say you guys? What are we going to do about this guy that's defying our God? kind of trying to, to, to rally the troops. And you can really tell this by the way his brother Eliab uh, reacts to all this. Why have you come down here, he says, and, and 
who did you leave your sheep with? You know, kind of taking a shot at the fact that he's only a shepherd. He has no place here amongst the men on the field of battle. And he says, quote, I know the presumption and evil of your heart, end quote. So it seems like he's kind of saying, hey, little shepherd boy, you know, what, what, are you, what are you getting at here trying to stir folks up? You don't belong here, you know, that sort of stuff. But you start to get a picture of what kind of guy David is here in this scene. He's, he's sort of fearless, scrappy, you know, punching above his weight. David's visit to the front lines and his provocation of the troops catches the attention of the king. Saul calls David to him, and David tells him, I'll go fight this Philistine. Of course, this idea is, is preposterous to Saul, he calls David a youth and tells him that there is no way he can fight Goliath. And David sort of defends his preparedness to enter into a battle like this by bringing up some of his credentials, which are pretty impressive. David pleads his case in verses 34 through 36 by saying, quote, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. End quote. Don't worry, he says. I've taken care of business with lions and bears before, so Goliath should be no problem. Plus, he adds at the end, it's really the Lord who's going to fight for me anyway. I love the depiction of this conversation that Josephus gives us. Again, adding a little flavor, which of course we take with a grain of salt, but it's still kind of interesting. Josephus quotes David as saying, quote, I undertake this enterprise in dependence on God's being with me. For I have had experience already of his assistance. For I once pursued after and caught a lion that assaulted my flocks and took away a lamb from them. And I snatched the lamb from out of the wild beast's mouth. And when he leaped upon me with violence, I took him by the tail and dashed him against the ground. In the same manner did I avenge myself on a bear also. And let this adversary of ours be esteemed like one of these wild beasts, since he has a long while reproached the army and blasphemed our God, who yet will reduce him under my power. End quote. I love David's confidence. Pretty similar quote there from Josephus to what you find in 1 Samuel. To make things more interesting, the Hebrew verbs used in verses 34 through 36 of 1 Samuel to describe all of the action taking place with David's encounters with the lion and the bear are what are called frequentative verbs, meaning that they are um, used to describe action occurring on more than one occasion or frequently. It's possible that David is saying here that you know when, whenever a lion or a bear attacked my flock, I killed it. So David could have defeated bears and lions on several occasions, not just one time. I also can't help but think of Jesus when I hear of David's resume as 
um, as master protector of his flock. Isn't this how Jesus describes himself in the Gospels? I mean, how many times in the Gospel accounts does he talk about God's people being sheep without a shepherd? And, and in John 10, where Jesus describes himself as the shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep and giving his sheep eternal life. He goes on to say in John 10 that he and his father are one and that no one will snatch his sheep out of his father's hand. All throughout Scripture, David is supposed to um, to prefigure Christ, to foreshadow his coming. Jesus is the greater David, the greater king. And I love the foreshadowing of Christ here in David as the good shepherd who will rescue his sheep out of the clutches of evil. Well, David is able to convince Saul to let him attempt to fight Goliath. Saul tries to put his own armor on David, which just doesn't fit. I do think it seems symbolic and a bit ironic that Saul attempts to clothe David in the king's armor, since God has promised that he will tear the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. A bit of foreshadowing in this event, maybe. David then goes to a brook to gather his ammunition. The text tells us that he selects five smooth stones to fire from his sling. And lest you think this is some random sort of child's toy that David decides to use, slings were actually not unheard of at all in the military combat of the time. They could be used as a type of barrage attack. Where David is unique, however, is his idea to use one in hand-to-hand combat. The stones he selected were probably about the size of a fist, not the small pebbles that I'd always imagined. Why did he choose five stones, though? And why does the text give us that little detail? Unfortunately, I don't know the answer. You know, was he afraid that he might miss with the first one and need more ammo? This, this is probably the most common answer that I've heard to this question, and very well could be the reasoning for gathering five different stones. But I have to say that this doesn't really fit David's personality. I think it's clear to say that he's very confident, maybe of himself, but definitely in God's ability to give him victory over Goliath. He does kind of seem like the guy who would say, while gathering stones, you know, all I need is one. I've also come across the theory that uh, the five stones weren't all for Goliath. As you recall from earlier, First Chronicles tells us that there were Um, At at, at least four, I don't know, maybe there may have been five other giants living in Gath. Maybe the other four stones were intended for the other giants. That's the theory I've heard. There is no evidence for that. And who knows if the other giants were even on the battlefield. We're certainly not told that they were. You know, was David going to track them all down, killing them with the stones he had just gotten out of that um, body of water? Who really knows, but he takes his five stones and his sling, and he approaches the Philistine giant in the valley of Elah. As David approaches Goliath, verse 42 says that when Goliath saw David, he disdained him. Then he says to David in verses 43 and 44, quote, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. End quote. In Josephus' account of the encounter, 
He says that Goliath, when he sees that David is coming at him with a sling, joked that with the sling it looks like he's more prepared to drive off dogs than to fight a man. Goliath asks, quote, Dost thou take me not for a man, but for a dog? David's response, quote, No, not for a dog, but for a creature worse than a dog. This makes Goliath mad, at which time he calls the curses down upon David and threatens to kill David and, and throw his body to the wild animals. David answers him, quote, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a breastplate, but I have God for my armor in coming against thee, who will destroy thee and all thy army by my hands. For I will this day cut off thy head and cast the other parts of thy body to the dogs, and all men shall learn that God is the protector of the Hebrews and that our armor and our strength is in his providence. And without God's assistance, all other warlike preparations and power are useless. End quote. And again, that's from Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. I'm not going to read the quote of what David says in 1 Samuel 17 because I think it'd be a little too too redundant. A lot of overlap between Josephus's account and um, the, the the 1 Samuel 17 account. As I've said, Josephus just adds a little bit of a little bit of flair. Um, at this point, the battle is on, and Josephus then recounts that Goliath moves in for the attack, expecting to wipe the floor with this kid, really underestimating David, and being encumbered by the vast weight of his armor. He just doesn't move all that quickly. First Samuel says that David moved with speed to meet Goliath on the battlefield, and in an instant, David loads a stone into his sling and zips it toward the giant. Josephus says, quote, The youth met his antagonist, being accompanied with an invisible assistance, who was no other than God himself. End quote. Josephus also records that the stone sinks into Goliath's forehead and into his brain, and the giant collapses face forward on the ground. Now, it's a bit unclear at this point if Goliath is dead yet. Josephus says he was just stunned when he fell to the ground, and, and, and this seems to be apparent as well in 1 Samuel 17, when David runs over to the, to the felled giant, takes his own sword out of its sheath, and deals the final blow, chopping off Goliath's head with his own sword. The Philistines' champion was defeated. The story concludes with the Philistine forces being routed by the Israelites. We are told that the Israelite army chases the demoralized enemy all the way back to Gath and the gates of Ekron, some 15 miles. This would not be the last of the conflict between the Israelites and Philistines. They will finally be subdued by David as king and his son Solomon, but let's not forget the one, outside of David, central character in the story, the giant. One commentator I read suggests that Goliath's downfall here was that he made the all-too-common mistake of underestimating his enemy. You know, maybe the, the brim of his helmet should have been kept a little bit lower to prevent that stone from hitting his forehead. You know, if he really did believe that this young man in his sling 
was of any real danger to him. Could have, could have maybe taken more precautions. And certainly there, there is an element in this story of Goliath underestimating David, but the biblical account really seems to drive home the thematic point of Goliath and really all of the Philistines underestimating the God of the Israelites. And maybe the Israelites are guilty of the same thing. The story, as I've mentioned before, really harkens back to the story of the 12 spies in the book of Numbers, ten of whom bring back that bad report about the giants in the land. Just as with the Israelites on the battlefield in Samuel chapter 17, the majority of those spies and all of the Israelite camp were scared and didn't trust in God's awesome strength. Yet in the story of the spies, there was a small minority, two of the spies, who did believe that God was powerful enough to defeat the giant Nephilim in the land. And here, in the valley of Elah, David, a small minority, not just in number, but also apparently in his physical size, fully believes in the power of his God to give him victory over the giant Goliath. The same story seems to be playing out again as it had earlier in Israel's history, and interestingly enough, both times the story centers around the supernatural evil which manifested itself in these Rephaim, the evil giant offspring from the fallen heavenly beings in Genesis chapter 6. It is fascinating to me and seems important that Goliath is the only giant in all of the Bible to, to actually speak. Not that other giants weren't speaking, Goliath is just the only one to have his words recorded. Maybe the reason for this little oddity and Goliath uh, receiving greater attention than any other giant is that Goliath, I think, really can be viewed as the culmination of this giant conflict. I guess both, both figuratively and literally between the supernatural forces of evil and God's people. You really get the idea that both the flood of Genesis and the initial conquest into the promised land were supposed to eradicate the hybrid Nephilim, but they didn't. Why those two events didn't do the trick is a question hotly debated amongst scholars, and I don't think anyone has a great answer. If it is really the chief evil force, um, Satan, who's pulling the strings here, then maybe he keeps pulling the strings to cause more of these hybrid Nephilim to appear. I don't know the answer either. But on the battlefield in the Valley of Elah, David comes face to face with one of the last vestiges of the evil giants and walks off the battlefield victorious. 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles speak of David sort of uh, doing some cleanup duty with the final handful of giants living in Gath, the ones we mentioned earlier. But the biblical narrative makes it abundantly clear that it is really only through David's victories that the giants are finally and completely defeated. David, in many ways, as we've mentioned, is meant to prefigure Christ. David is the great messianic forerunner. This is clear throughout Scripture. Christ is like David, but a greater David. And could it be that just as it is only through David that the forces of evil manifested in these giant Nephilim, the Rephaim, are defeated, it is only through Christ's sacrifice on the cross 
that the forces of evil were finally and fully defeated, announcing God's victory in the great cosmic battle for the fate of his creation, a glimpse of which we see play out in the story of David and Goliath. Thanks for listening to Biblical Proportions. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe on the podcast and download the episodes because that helps us know who's listening. Also, make sure you go to our website, www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com to check out the sources used for each episode under the Sources tab. Finally, if you think what we're doing here is worthwhile, then we sure would appreciate your support. On the website, there's a place where you can give your support to what we're doing at Biblical Proportions and assist us in continuing to put out content like what you just listened to. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.